This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. Hello and welcome back, Americana Podcast listeners. Over the course of nearly three years, we at Americana Podcast have spoken with a wonderful collective of artists and industry professionals alike about the workings of this seemingly expanding umbrella of music we lovingly refer to as Americana. Parts of that discussion at times have touched on its history, but we've never really broached the subject of its early days and what that entailed and who exactly was there at the beginning. With that in mind, we've decided to shake it up a bit and welcome longstanding Americana advocate and friend Rob Bleetstein. Bleetstein, in casual circles, is a music lover. A long-time, ticket-collecting, road-junkie, band-following fan if there ever was one. Which, let's be honest, that all tracks for an original deadhead. But he's not someone stuck completely in the past. Driven by just the desire to hear good music... There isn't an artist, old or young, on the scene that Rob Bleetstein seemingly doesn't already know about. And if you do happen to somehow introduce him to someone he hasn't heard of, he'll send you what can only be described as an essay or a review of his thoughts on their first two records in addition to the direction they're heading with their next one. You can't beat him. I've tried. You can't do it. Just listen. Professionally, Bleedstein's credentials range from publicist, archivist, and currently programmer and director of Pearl Jam Radio on Sirius XM. What he is to Americana, though, well, he was one of the early, if not original, adopters of the term. We've mentioned this publication a couple of times, but he used to work at Gavin Magazine in the early 90s, and he was one of the original coiners of the description Americana, a publisher of the first chart in 1997. When we started this show, Rob was the first person I actually reached out to, and he gave me everything and more to know about Americana music in its early days. Rob Bleetstein is not only a music lover, but he's a true music shaper. So join us today as our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with Rob Bleetstein about the early days of Americana, his experiences as a longtime music lover, his contributions, and what is on the horizon of the genre. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast. The 51st State. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Earl Keane, and you're listening to Americana Podcast, The 51st State. Our guest today is Rob Bleetstein. He's a, uh, well, the inventor of the, the, our coined the term Americana music when he was working at Gavin uh, Magazine back in, I don't know, what, what year was that, Rob? Uh, uh, beginning of 95, pitched in late 94, and uh, credit also goes to John Grimson, who actually uh, was using the term, and then when we realized we needed to come up with something besides the words alternative country, we landed with that. So did you go through Red Dirt and 
Texas country and uh, what no, Western beat was that? No, that, 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 that was Billy blocks um, yeah. and Warner brothers and Kevin Welch and those guys wound up using that. But no, my first pitch was uh, crucial country. So I called up, I called up Peter Rowan and I said, Hey, can I steal your word? And he said, sure. And, uh, and then when I pitched it to Gavin, they were like, well, that doesn't really work because uh, you know, that means the other country isn't crucial. And I was like, well, precisely, but that doesn't really work when you're trying to, you know, survive on ad dollars from record labels. Yeah. So uh, tell, tell us about Ga Gavin in those days. It was, it, it was quite, it was quite a, a force, wasn't it? it yeah. Was Gavin was one of the most respected radio trade magazines started by the late great Bill Gavin back in like, I think the fifties or early sixties. And, you know, back in the day it was like, Billboard, Cashbox, and Gavin were kind of the main radio trades. And and Gavin definitely built a name for itself and a reputation and then started doing those conventions, which really were the backbone to it for, for many years towards, you know, in the 80s and 90s. They were like huge events that would happen at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco every year and multiple formats, big bands. Just It was just a, a great event. And uh, Gavin began in the Bay Area and and uh, remained there. Yeah, it was always a San Francisco, always a San Francisco based trade publication. And uh, that that was your, was that your very first uh, magazine job or writing job that you had? No, actually, when I when I moved to Nashville in 1987, I did some writing for Music Row magazine for David Ross back uh -huh. back then and. Because I, I moved to Nashville, you know, just cold with no gig, just knew a few people, you being one of them, and right. just um, did whatever I could. You know, I was doing a radio show on an AM Classic Country channel because they were liking the freeform K-Fat, K-Hip kind of thing I was doing. And I uh, was interning at uh, with Sherman Halsey at his um, management company that was working with Dwight Yoakam and Desert Rose Band. And then I wound up walking into Bug Music and wound up getting a gig there and you and you and and uh buggy was originally from california as well but was it that was southern california fred and dan yeah fred and dan Burgoyes had bug music in in la and then uh -huh. opened that opened that national office with gary Valletri. and yeah. when i found out about them i just walked in there and i said hey i've been playing your whole catalog on the radio for the last bunch of years i need a gig <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so speaking of radio, what was your first radio job? Um, professional, if you could call it that, <laughs> would be K-Hip. I mean, I started yeah. doing radio when I was, I mean, I knew I wanted to do radio when I was in high school and started interning at a college station my senior year in high school on Long Island. And, um, and, and, you know, I was so heavily influenced by K-Fat even before I moved to California and knew that that was my thing. And then I just lucked out right out of right. When I got out of college after doing radio, it's in San Jose state. Um, the people from KFAT, which went under in 1993 while I was in college resurrected at a station called K hip and Hollister. And I got wind of that, like the first day they were on the air and I just drove down there and I said, I need to, you know, KFAT's my life. I need a gig. I'm not leaving until I get one. And they put me on overnights like right away. And and overnights were uh, seven days a week, four days a week. What, what I think I started just doing weekends because I think it was just, 
you know, it was bare bones. They weren't even having anybody on overnights. And then right. we started overnights on weekends. And then I started doing it, I think, all week in midnight to six. And those are some crazy fun times. And the genre of music that K-Hip was famous for? Uh, I guess the word would be Americana, but you know, it was, you know, K-Hip was, uh, was doing exactly what K-Fat was doing, just bringing it into the 80s. And, you know, it was just a mix of what they would call progressive country back in the 70s, mixed with, you know, Grateful Dead, Rolling Stones, Bob Wills, you know, all of it. So but basically we're talking about a, a free form kind of programming how, how was that how was that programmed is like is, and now you know there's just so many charts and there's so many guidelines to radio uh you're talking about a time when you know yeah it was a time where their own set lists or their own well, rosters yeah it was it was beyond freeform it would be you come in you roll a joint you smoke a joint you play whatever you want and you make it work and, <laughs> and, and it did and you know and when, and when you have a group of when you have a group of uh, DJs and music people who live for it and uh, breathe it and uh, everyone brings in their own sort of favorite things and knowledge about this and that and you put them all together and you can make really good things happen like KFAT definitely did and and it was all you know these these were also like lifestyle stations you know uh, they were, uh, Was this where you developed this this innate sense that you seem to have? I mean, we, we, uh, just full disclosure here, Rob and I have known each other for <laughs> well, for a long, long, long time. But I've always thought of Rob as you know the 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 premier ear to the ground guy on on music. I mean, the, you know, you've mentioned people to me that uh, were barely. Uh, getting out of uh, open mic nights down at the the local coffee shop or something and and it went on to you know be have some significant power and and uh attention in the music business so uh is this well, is it was that 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 where this happened where yeah K yeah but K- K- i think it was probably the best the best example of that and uh-huh. i used i used two examples you being one of them and Dwight Yoakam being the other one, where with the case with you, we're just doing our thing, smoking joints, playing records, getting people into it and having people come by and putting on concerts and stuff like that. And then one day we get this thing and we get this package in the mail from Workshop Records in Austin, Texas. We open it up and there's this guy, Robert Earl Keen, no kind of dancer and Austin Lounge Lizards, Creatures from the Black Saloon. And we just fell in love with both of them immediately. And I'll never forget as soon as, you know, we put that thing on and heard front porch song, we're like, who the fuck is this guy? This is great. And so, and then I think we reached out. I mean, I think I reached out to you maybe a week after that or something like that. And I was like, got to find this guy. And the same thing with, with Dwight, I wound up, um, you know, I was working at the station and wound up seeing him open for Los Lobos at the catalyst in Santa Cruz and no one and no one in our world knew who he was and i walked up to him and pete anderson right after their gig before los lobos came on and i was like 
you're fucking it. You know, I was like, we got a station down the road. You got to come down and visit and hang out. And, and they did. And Uh oh, really? You you got Dwight to come in? Well, we wound up doing our, we wound up doing our anniversary party with him and Joe Ely, like a year later. But, um, I wound up, I wound up interviewing Dwight. Um, I don't think they, they didn't come down to the station, but we wound up getting together, um, after his new year's gig, uh, Uh that year when he opened for Lobos again at the Fillmore. Um, but that was the perfect case in point. It was like, you know, he, he wasn't on Warner brothers yet. I think he just had that EP out on Oak records and I think gave me one that night and was like, you know, this guy is totally it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it did. And it didn't take much, you know, it doesn't take much to re- to realize that it's like, you see this guy and you hear the music and it's like, no one's, no one's doing this. This is, you know, country music's coming back. And that was also such a great, great point in time it was like you know all that stuff was starting to percolate and within a year later it was like you had dwight on warners you had tony brown signing steve earl and lyle and nancy griffith and all that the the great progressive scare of the 80s as we love to refer to it (laughs) (laughs) and uh uh, rodney and roseanne did they fit into this group as well well yeah well yeah rodney and roseanne for for me it's the personal backbone because i you know through kfat and in 1981 is when I kind of got turned on to them and they became my world. And, you know, Roseanne is really the first female artist that really, you know, took hold of my brain and my heart and my soul. And, and it's gone on forever from then, but I'd say she's definitely the first one that really got me turned on to female artists and, and, and was that and, and that that record uh, or or some of those songs at that time? Do you, yeah, like, like was like, that before like, Seven Year Eight? No, that was that, that was right during Seven Year Eight. Like that album had oh. just come out, and KFAT was playing the hell out of that. And Rodney's, I think, uh, second record at that time uh-huh. just came out, just called Rodney Crowell. And um, so they were just playing heavy, and they would they would play Santa Cruz and and. It was just great stuff. So for Rodney, was that "Ain't Living Long Like This" and "Stars on the Water"? Yeah, "Stars on the Water." Yeah, "Stars on the Water." Um, right. "Ain't Living Long Like This" uh, till I can gain control again. Yeah, all oh, that great stuff. song. Yeah. yeah, and and to and to me, they were you know, and they were like the first first couple of country music, and they were uh-huh. like the, they were like real country music because uh, you know, again, at that time in the early 80s mid 80s you know i guess mainstream countries always had this issue of stuff that you always just question you're like huh right <laughs> right the bear joy lights come on and then the crowd starts rolling in you got stars on the water just like stars on the water you got stars Tell me about um, maybe like the, you know, the first song you ever remember hearing in your life or the first artist that you, you had felt like there's some kind of connection to. Well, I know growing up, I was definitely way into the Beatles as a little kid and like still have my Corgi toy yellow submarine. I still have my Apple 45s um, still have my original Beatles 
vinyls. So I know that was way into the Beatles for a long time. But my uh, my obsession with country music and the pedal steel guitar and all that really started when I was 10 years old when I got turned on to the new writers of the Purple Sage and their album Power Glide, which was their second album, which will have its 50th anniversary this year. And, um, and you know that because you still work with them in some way, right? Yeah, I am their archivist, producer, web guy, the one guy keeping that name alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, somehow they took a hold of me. I was in my friend Hank Schechter's house listening to his sister's older rec- his older sister's records. And just the sound, I've never, I never heard a pedal steel guitar before. I didn't even know what it was, but I was like, whatever that is, I need more of it. And I'm going wherever that takes me. Uh-huh. And, and I, I, and then, and then when I saw those guys, like saw them, like, saw pictures, saw, you know, their ads in the paper and stuff like that. And then I remember they were on in concert in 1973 and seeing what long haired cowboy freaks they were. And I was just mm-hmm. like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so can you break down the band for me a little bit, their, their origin and the guys, you know, the players? Yeah. Well, they sort of started as a, a Grateful Dead spinoff group, basically, is uh, the songs of John Marmaduke Dawson, who um, passed away in 2009. But he had written, you know, and they all came from that same folk scene in Palo Alto in the early 60s. So before there was a Grateful Dead and before there was New Riders, all those guys were in these little folk bands. And Jerry Garcia was a banjo player. And David Nelson, who was also the uh, lead guitarist in the New Riders, um, they're all in that circle and they all knew each other. So they were going in and out. And then um, the new writers were basically birthed in 1969 when um, John Dawson had all these great classic songs that were brand new. And Jerry Garcia was experimenting with a steel guitar. So those two got together and just started like playing in living in their living room and then they started playing in little coffee houses mm-hmm. and then it expanded into um basically david nelson hooked up with john dawson and garcia and then it was like hey well the the dead just need to take these two guys out on the road and at the time mickey hart was playing from the dead was playing drums with them and garcia was playing steel and i think they roped in a few different bass players before they landed with Dave Torbert. And so basically in the beginning, they were just taking two guys out in like 1969, early Mm -hmm. 70 to open up shows for them. So it was kind of economical for them to do. And then it turned into a bigger thing. And then they made this first record with Garcia on pedal steel, the self-titled new rise of the purple sage, which came out in 1971. And, and then they would, they were basically on the road with the dead for almost all of 1971 opening a lot of shows, doing a lot of radio broadcasts. So um, they were getting their name out. And then, you know, by 1972 uh, definitely got to be too much for Garcia. He would end up be, you know, there would be nights where he'd play an acoustic set. Then he'd play a set on pedal steel with the new riders. Then he'd play two electric sets. So it's like, <laughs> Oh my God, the dude worked. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and that's when they found, but that's when they got Buddy Cage from, um, wow. who had been with, um, oh, Great Speckled Bird. Mm-hmm. Played on that great album, Great Speckled Bird. And he'd also had done touring with, with Ann Murray. And, um, but he was also, he was on that, um, 
the train ride in 1970, the dead and the band and Janis Joplin and a bunch oh, the of the famous people. train ride. Yeah. The famous for the festival express. You can see it in the movie festival express. Uh -huh. So that's when they uh, really connected with buddy cage. And I think it was on that trip that they're like, yeah, that's the guy who's going to take over Garcia's spot. And, and then from then on, it was, they were more, uh, they didn't rely on the dead for, uh, yeah, they kind of they kind yeah they kind of broke out on broke out on their own, and then by 1973 they made that record, The Adventures of Panama Red, using Peter Ruins' Panama Red song, and that was right. sort of their biggest FM radio hit and their most popular record and their only gold album. And yeah, so they definitely had their own following. They were certainly very big on the East Coast, without a doubt. So you've been a lifelong live music fan. When did you, when did it occur to you that, that going to a live concert was a completely different experience than just listening to a recorded record? Oh, uh, probably the first it's, it's funny. Cause I, I start looking up my thing and, you know, have a lot of ticket stubs. Don't have them all, especially the ones from the super early days, but I do have my first, my first real rock show, I guess was a grateful dead concert in 1973 and i was it was like a, a month before my 12th birthday and i sort of i you know i knew what was going on but i didn't really know what was going on so it was a good little um thing but but i'd say right after that that opened the floodgate because the next year in 1974 i started seeing a lot of shows um i remember going to Roosevelt Raceway, seeing Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Joni Mitchell, the Beach Boys, and Jesse Colin Young. And this, wow! Yeah, it was the thing that Bill Graham put on. Um, it was the summer right before, I guess, going into eighth grade, and um, and that month, and I saw the band that month at Nassau Coliseum. I saw Stevie Wonder, um, and then I saw my first New Riders concert of September, September seventy four, and that that really changed everything because it's also yeah <laughs> i'm like 12 years old i'm with one friend we're like maybe three feet tall you know mm -hmm. and we're mm -hmm. we're fourth row right in the i'm sitting right in front of buddy cage's amps i'm getting my head blown out and it's at this college on long island cw post college and all these kids next to us are just super into getting us high mm -hmm. and that, so that was the first experience with that and the first and so my mm -hmm. mind was sufficiently blown in multiple ways that evening. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of been, I guess my concert addiction has been nonstop ever since. But you, you, you're still a fan of recorded music. It's just uh, it's, uh, when you when you speak about it, it, it always have kind of a different tone about recorded versus live things. I mean, you definitely are a huge. Yeah. Music I mean, yeah. Yeah. Where you can and when you can find the live experience, I uh, want I wind up jumping on that. I mean, mm -hmm. and and some bands, I'll you know, the records come out and there are references basically to learn the songs and know the songs and get into the albums. It's it's so different now too because everything is so much and so instant and so you know it, there was a, you know 
back then it was like you know an album a band put out a record once a year if you were lucky you right. you you salivated for that date you waited for that date i mean i mean i was i knew the new riders panama red album was coming out the day it came out and i you know had my mom take me to the record store and the guy was like i can't believe you know this is coming out today and i'm like yeah gotta have it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um well help me with this i you know i I, I, you know, I, I love live music and, and uh, I've gone to see a lot of shows, but I, I would never say that I was, you know, a, someone who followed bands very much or uh, was, you know, buying tickets way in advance. And uh, but I realized that uh, over the last two years, especially with the initial lockdowns of COVID, uh, where there were no shows, just no shows out there in the world, there were people that, you know, I would talked to that just fell into a great deal of true depression about not being able to see live music and 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 it made me realize you know i i don't have that i have this great love of music but i tend to like recorded music but the, the live experience uh, it must do something to you and and others like you that just that makes all the difference and, can you try to help me with that a little bit? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you're on the other side of the microphone, so I get why you would. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but being on the other side, okay. Here's a great example of it. Um, and during this pandemic, yeah, it was you know, first of all, you, you know, there's a communal feeling about being at a concert. You're sharing this experience with all these people around you, and but what I really found out when I went to my first show back in April of 21 which was an outdoor thing in santa cruz seeing this band the dark star orchestra which is a oh i know band. the dark star I, yeah. i've never seen them but I, i've seen their posters and i've played play, yeah. i've crossed paths with them a ton of times yeah they're like a consummate grateful dead cover band they've really got that they've got the sound uh-huh. they've got the sounds down it's like if you if they're not uh-huh. singing and they're just playing and you turn your back you're like what tape are we listening to uh-huh. you know? it's like it's that good they're that uh-huh. on um, but anyway i went and saw them as Santa Cruz at this outdoor thing, it was, you know, potted and spaced out. So that was sort of weird. But, um, the fact of being in front of a giant PA and feeling what that does to you, it was Uh like, I hadn't felt it in a year. And I was like, Oh my God, that's, that's what's been missing. You know, it was Uh like, there's something about a, you know, live sound taking over your entire being and all your pores. It's just, does right. something to you so you take that along with music that you love that experience that has you know penetrated your heart mind and soul to begin uh-huh. with and then you mix that with you know fr- friends and surrounding people all grooving on the same thing uh-huh. it just builds up to this thing you know i mean you you got to feel it back from the crowds every time you break in the road goes on forever i'm sure you know right right I, I, and i do and and i and i think of the crowds as being um one of those uh, uh, you know the aggies have this uh the the aggies had this 12th man thing which is about um if they lost a man on the field uh when they're playing football that the somebody in the crowd it comes from uh i believe a true story but it's also mythical in, in some ways uh someone came out of the crowd and took over that player's place and that's the 12th man. And I, and I do think of like the audience as being the 
the twelfth man in that way. In that, if 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 you don't have that audience, you can have a big audience, but if they're not with you, uh, it makes a whole difference in the way you can perform, the way you feel about e each and every song, each and every note. And so, um, I, I can I certainly have that's a feeling that you can't get anywhere else than in that live situation uh, but when you're talking about like that communal thing uh, i've never experienced that so much but i do have a question about that of uh, in the worlds of like friends and family who would you consider the person that's a non-musician that taught you the most about music or turned you on to some of the best music wow well, i'd have to i'd have to i'd have to I don't know if it's a it's a person. It's more I'd say radio stations back in uh -huh. the day. You know, right. I mean, I was super lucky growing up in New York at the time. I did having WLIR and WNEW. Uh -huh. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, I for sure Joe Ely in nineteen seventy nine on WLIR. He was right. playing, you know, and then I got to see him. He opened open for the New Riders at the club in my hometown. You know, two two shows a night, two nights in a row, and that was the first time. You know, Lloyd Maines is like holding his pedal steel up by the by the legs, playing the thing. I was I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was so great, and um, so I I think having access to that and having radio be the way it was in the seventies was just such a great thing. It was it wasn't so niched. It wasn't so segmented. It was like you. You know, the stations, they would, you know, somewhere I first got turned on to Amy Lou Harris. Mm -hmm. And and these are like, you know, these are basically what's known as rock stations, but they were, uh -huh. they, they would play it all. Um, so I, I kind of, yeah, I, I kind of think it's more of, I learned more from that. And also, you know, when I, in college, I worked at a, rec or at a record store in San Jose and just learning so much of stuff coming in. And then people, you know, Anyone, any person who works in a record store is definitely a music freak and everyone mm -hmm. brings, again, everyone brings in their own little personal things. So, you know, getting turned on to so many different things by different people. Well, I like that movie High Fidelity kind of thing. Yeah, maybe not as nerdy, but. <laughs> not, not, not as nerdy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the same, same, the same idea, definitely. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, you know, like I'm the hillbilly Grateful Dead guy in the yeah. store. And then this one guy is all about Y&T, the band Y&T and heavy metal. And, you know, and it was also, you know, Madonna was just breaking through at the time. So being subjected to that 50 times a day on the store PA, it was like. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our interview shortly. Here at Americana Podcast, we like to explore the past, present, and future of the genre. With help from our dear friend and music connoisseur, Will Vote, this is Will's Pick. Hayes Carl, title track from the album, You Get It All. Our best songwriters are continually improving their craft. The release of a new album from a favorite artist always creates excitement when it contains songs that break new grounds in terms of melody, lyrics, and subject. One such is musician, Texas singer-songwriter, Hayes Carl. 
Born near Houston, Texas, Carl found his voice playing in shrimper bars and honky-tonks on the Texas coast near Galveston in the late 90s. Over the last two decades, Carl has built up a solid reputation as a clever songwriter and an appealing performer. With a wide canon already, he contributed with his October 2021 release, You Get It All. With 11 new original songs, most of these address his usual themes of love and loss and the vagaries of the modern world in a way that mixes humor with a touch of sarcasm. Sung from his trademark languid voice, his songs have a real knack for depicting the world we live in. The title track, You Get It All, is sung from the personal perspective of Carl singing to his muse about the good and the bad he brings to their relationship as that is all a part of his love and that they get it all. And although this is definitely a romantic song, at times it almost sounds like a message to his listeners as well. Good and bad, easy and rough, this is the journey we're all on together in the course of his music. We get it all. Let's talk about, okay, here, and then look, I, I have a, a list of some things that I, I know you know about um, as far as artists. Let's talk about a few few artists that, you know, like you turned me on, you turned me on to Gwil Owen. Tell me about Gwil Owen, you know. Okay, well, Gwil, um, when I, actually, when I got the gig at Bug Music in the in the 80s when I lived in Nashville, um, I was basically ma mandated with two things. It was like, go in this room and learn John Hyatt's catalog. That mm -hmm. was, that was thing number one. And that was a pleasure. Mm -hmm. And then, um, Gary had signed this band, the thieves and Will was their main songwriter and they were young and they were like, to me, they were like the Rolling Stones. It was like, this is, these guys are great. I mean, these guys have energy, like energy for miles and really great songs. And, mm -hmm. And while the band may have blown up after a couple of years, Gwil continued on and still continues on writing great music. He wrote so much good stuff with Tony Price for Tony Price over the years. Um, he's made his own records and it's just a fantastic writer. And he's ventured into other things. Um, he's doing, doing, doing art, selling, doing, he has a, he's got a book business, but he's still making music. And Is he still in uh, Nashville? Yeah, he's still in Nashville, and he's still and he's working on a, a new record right now, which is great to hear. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I remember I remember you turning me on to him and playing me some songs for, for, from Gwil, and I want to say this is this is unique for me for about Gwil is Gwil is the only person that ever officially tried to pitch me a song. I didn't I didn't end up cutting cutting it, but I I liked it. And it was just sort of because when I went into the studio, I forgot about it at the time or something. But I remember really liking that song and thinking, I can do this song. This, this song works for me. And it was like, I felt like 
here's a guy that actually is really pitching me a song and actually pitching me a song that's just not just some thing. It's something that kind of relates to the kind of stuff that I like, you know, and I always thought that was very cool, you know, so that's glad cool. to hear what, what, that. Do you huh? remember what song that we remember? I, remember what I, song that was? I do not know. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> yeah, I, ask him, but I, I did think it. And then we'll get you, and then we'll get you to cut it. Then we'll, uh, yeah. I, you know what? I, I'm a lot more open to cutting songs these <laughs> days. Tell me about Lauderdale. You were way ahead of anybody on Lauderdale, and I, <laughs> and I, you know, not not place. everybody, because I guess um, this always this is I always find this really interesting. But um, you know, Jim and Sean Colvin and Buddy Miller, mm-hmm. well, they had this really big thing going in New York City, and that was like right when I left New York. So I was like, I missed them. You know, I probably mm-hmm. would have I probably would have known them in 1981 if I hadn't didn't move to California. But right probably be dead too (laughs) (laughs) but uh instead uh, you're grateful dead man so great there you go there you go um but jim's part of that whole town south of bakersfield pete anderson dwight yoakam thing from the mid 80s um which was which was a huge thing for us all that was also another major thing at khip you know that whole town south of bakersfield thing and but it's just great stuff just i mean it really captured that whole scene that, you know, that, that LA country scene in the mid eighties was, was just on fire and really related to it really well. And Jim was a great writer and just, you know, even, even back then it was just so apparent, you know, this guy's got a a voice of gold and a pen of of gold as well. So he had, he had it going on. And then um, Pete made this record with him and he got signed to, I think Epic records in Nashville Right, and then it wound up never coming out. But then it came out years later, maybe in the early two thousands or something. It got reissued, and it was just that was, what, was what's the name of that record? Oh man, I don't know. I have to go. <laughs> I'll, look, I, I'll, I'll look it up. But it, so, yeah. so that, the very first Lauderdale record never came out. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but it did come out years later. Uh huh. So, yeah. but it's out now. Right? It's out now, yeah. So what, what does it sound like? What what was the first oh, thing yeah, you it, ter- turned it, me on to was the King of Hearts or what what is it? King of Broken or, King of Broken Hearts, which he King. recorded on Planet of Love, which came out on Warner Brothers that John Leventhal and Rodney Crowell co produced. Now that was so was that the first official record that that, that, that Lauderdale did? I think so. King of Broken Hearts? Is that the uh, one well, where, where well, he didn't have was, his shirt on? Yeah, Planet of Love. Oh, uh, so. right, no, right. I don't okay. know. Yeah, right. Uh, Jim is not. Jim's not only so prolific, but Jim is so productive. I mean, he puts out like three. He's like Willie. He puts out like three records a year. Yeah. Oh uh, so no, no, uh, no. I, I mean, I, I love Jim. I mean, because he, you know, yeah. as opposed to what I was saying that I was like so timid about trying other stuff, and I mean that. I mean sky's the limit with jim i mean you know what yeah. does a bluegrass record and then does a record with donna the buffalo i mean you know that that yeah. sort of stuff and and equally good you know that 
I mean, you wouldn't think that his voice would actually meld so well with the, the Don of the Buffalo people, but it just works out. It works great. And, and, you know, the bluegrass thing was a lot more, seemed a lot more natural to him, but, but, you know, anything he seems to try, he seems to be able to do really well. Yeah. And one thing I'm super proud of, of him, for him, for him, and, um, was happy to help facilitate this. And he always tips his hat to me for it, but he called me up one day and he's like, can you get me in touch with Robert Hunter, who's the Grateful Dead lyricist? And right. he goes, I want to do something with him. And I said, yeah, I can make that happen. And uh, and then they got together and it worked. And it's pretty, it was sort of unusual too, because outside of Jerry Garcia and a few other people, sort of Bay Area based, um, Robert Hunter really didn't, you know, expand out too much and write with other people outside of this little community, you know, Bay Area musical community. So it was great that him and Jim, you know, connected. It worked for both of them. And then they wound up winning a Grammy, making this record with Ralph Stanley. So is that right? Yeah. And that was like a, you know, a dream come true for all of them, especially. So it was really great to see. So that was, I think he did two bluegrass records. That was the first bluegrass record. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that record. That was a great, great, great one. Great. Yeah. Great. And, 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 and they went on and they, they went on to do a series of albums. I mean, that I um, head for the Hills record is so good. Just filled with so many songs with Hunter's lyrics. And, uh-huh. and, and yeah, Jim, Jim did a great job of really bringing them out. You know, some really great songs on there. The king of broken hearts doesn't know he's a king. He's trying to forget other things. Like some old chilly scenes He's walking through alone He talks to angels and the stars start to spill He thinks of troubles and he's got near I mean, you've also, I guess, connected to the dead, to country music, to bluegrass and, and all that business. You also worked for David Grisman uh, for a n- number of years, uh, I guess for a long time and then not, and then some, and all, I don't know. I don't know all the chronology there, but it, it, tell it me was a, uh, well, yeah. Well, after, when I left Gavin, I was, um, well, my, my plan was to get an inter- do internet radio station and get an internet radio channel. Um, and that wound up happening. I wound up, um, working for that company radio IO and doing uh-huh. a bunch of channels for them for a couple of years. And at the same time I ran, I ran into David Grisman somewhere at some point and he's like, you know, Hey, what are you doing? We go, I, 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 you know, same old shit. And he's like, well, he's, like he's, 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 he's like, we're looking for a publicist. I'm like, I could do that. Yeah. I've never done it. I've never, never done it. never done it before, but I was like, sure, I'll do that. So it was more in public. It was more like, publicity marketing whatever but you know one of the greatest people you could ever work for and just such a talent such a you know and you, and you, you, you were the impetus behind the pizza tapes is that correct is that, is that what I yeah mean? um yeah so we're we're hanging out at his house one day okay, and, you gotta stop you just one minute for those who don't know david grisman is probably the uh, maybe maybe the greatest mandolin player alive and has played with some amazing people over the years and uh, uh def- definitely someone of note uh even outside of like um country and bluegrass circles he's a he's an incredible player 
Yeah, and he's created you know created his own style of music yeah. called dog right. music. Yeah, and um, and his work you know worked with jazz greats like Stefan Grappelli and right. recently made a record with Tommy Emmanuel, which is out of this world. Really? And yeah, and and David you know and he's such a historian and knowledgeable musical scribe as well. You know, right. he's you know and the thing about his acoustic acoustic disc label is. He's really into not only preserving these people and promoting them, but, you know, letting people know about their historical relevance and that this music needs to be heard. Mm -hmm. And it and it expands all over the place. So check and out then tell me about the pizza tapes. Oh, uh, so pizza tapes one day. Uh, so pizza tapes was um, it was just a studio session. One day, Tony Rice is at David's house and he calls up Jerry Garcia and doesn't even tell him who's who he's hanging out with says come over let's jam and i think jerry had always wanted to play with tony and then um like anytime anyone enters david's house who's a musician of note david hits record which is a very smart thing to do um everyone everyone should do that um and they basically just had these jam sessions that were amazing and somehow uh, there's a lot of myth behind it. No one really knows, but the tape got out. And the story was like David gave Garcia a, a cassette copy of the thing. And somehow Jerry ordered a pizza and gave either tipped the delivery guy with the tape or the guy stole the tape or no one knows, but somehow it got out there, uh -huh. you know, and it's like, you know, and you get your copy like eight generations later cassette, you know, you know, there's more hiss than there is music and one day one, yeah so one day we're well, i'm hanging out with david and we're like he just pops on one of these tapes and i'm like oh my god we got to put this out and and it's a it was a huge source subject to him the fact that his you know music that he didn't intend to be public got out in the public you know irked him greatly and he's like why would i put it out everybody already has it. i'm like they don't have it sounding like this are you kidding me if people heard this they'd go nuts uh -huh. and so he sent me home with like something like a dozen dats every note every note of the session and i went through it and made notes and you know just you know told him i said man we put this out we put the talking in we edit it down we do this we do this and we and we we go with the myth you know let's make it look like a pizza and call right. it the pizza games which it is and and it wound up doing really well and then um he actually put out an expanded version of it um a few years later with like every single note of it well not every single note because there's a couple of joints being passed around and there's a lot of coughing. So that didn't make it. Didn't make it <laughs> well, <laughs> Shady Grove, my little love, Shady Grove, I know. Shady Grove, my little love, about Shady Grove. So tell tell me about you know your current interests and 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 artists that are out there today. Fortunately enough, with this with the Americana podcast, uh, I'm I'm able to have my ear to ground a lot better than I ever have, and I've just found out that there's just a, there's just a flood of really great talent out there. So it is uh, it's probably the most hopeful thing in the whole world right now. Is yeah, the, is the flood of super high talent 
that is young. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the next the, the next generation is just it's right. incredible. I right. mean, you know, from Alison Russell's record Outside Child, which by far is the album of the year for me, and apparently a lot of other people. And, and our also, producer Clara Rose, that she just told me that last night that that was yeah. that was her definitely her top ten for the year. That's yeah, and and it's really and usually like I'll make my top twenty and uh-huh. like you know there's nothing popular on it. You know, uh-huh. people are like who are these people? Um, but for me to see like Allison Russell be like. John Pirelli is in the New York Times and his number two record. I was like, oh, he only missed by one. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) But just to see, you know, just to see mainstream recognizing true talent, true talent is great. And um, so there's a whole list of them. Uh, You know, they all happen to be female. I don't know why, but really into Katie Pruitt, who is an incredible singer, incredible guitar player really young got to see her open for rustin kelly a few times um i love this girl leslie stevens who's out of los angeles who has a voice that it's one of those sort of like um i'm not comparing her to anybody but it's kind of like like when you hear lucinda for the first time and you're like Uh you know no one else in the world has that voice you know and kind of like when i when i met leslie and well, the cool thing was I met Leslie and didn't even know she was an artist. And uh-huh. then like talking to her later, she's like, yeah, I'm, I, I do this and I do this. I'm playing at this person's house later on. You should come. So I actually went. And then when she opened her mouth and started singing, I was like, oh, my God. I'm, yeah. like, I mean, I'm glad I met her before she started singing because I don't know if I could even introduce myself. To her after. <laughs> it, was like, it was like that blew me away that much. And um, I love this girl, Cree Harrison, too, who is also in Nashville and has made these great country records that I don't understand why they don't catch on and people don't. And then I find out later on that she was like on American Idol one year, which Uh I've never seen one myself, but um, she's amazing as well. And I love Natalie Hemby's record this year too. And I love the one she did a bunch of years ago, which was super Americana, which surprised me because I had known Natalie's name from being like, you know, a super pro top mainstream songwriter. And when this record came out a bunch of years ago, um, called Puxico, um, I had no idea what to expect and just got it and put it on. I was like, Oh my God, this is Americana to the core, you know, it was so good. And then this record, um, she's kind of made her nineties rock record that she's always dreamed of making, but it's got so many good songs. Um, and coming up to, um, I got a, right now there's, um, Sarah Buxton in Nashville has put out two songs right now. She's going to be making a a record coming out, I guess next year, hopefully, but there's two songs up on the digital services right now. One called hard things and the other, um, what's the other one? This young and, uh, both those songs just, just absolutely slay me. So I don't want you to divulge all, all your secrets here, but where <laughs> where where are you finding uh, a lot of these people? How, how do how do these names pop up, and how do you get off? You know, uh, you, you know, just you know, just find them. Are you listening yeah. to certain certain kind of radio, or people sending you stuff these days, or what? I going think on? yeah, I, I think it's stuff that just either either shows up in the well, doesn't really show up in the mailbox like it used to, which is fine because there's nowhere to put it anymore right right <laughs> um i guess yeah i mean like like katie pruitt i saw open for 
Rustin Kelly here in San Francisco. And, you know, it was just floored that day. And mm -hmm. Leslie Stevens just met. And I think it's, it's sort of through other people and maybe it's sort of through social media as well. Like you follow one person's Instagram and you see them working or doing these other things or recommending these other people. There's some great talent out there, Rob. That's all I can say. There is. And, you know, and, and again, and on this younger side and this, you know, this whole East Nashville crew of, you know, Margot Price, Aaron Ray, Kashina Sampson, Michaela Ann, Lily Hyatt, Nikki Lane, Darren Bradbury, Jeremy Ivy. It's like everyone's got their own thing going and they're all so unique and so original and so talented. And and again, it's like so I got turned on to Aaron Ray by Margot. And at the time I was like, you know, she's this young gal playing this stuff in Nashville. I'm like, how is she ever going to get someone behind her? And like, how is she going to break through? And then it's, you know, a few years later, it's happening. It you know, she's, yeah. she's got, she's got records out. She's on tour. She's, you know, getting noticed and it's really great. And um, also I, th I think Michaela Ann has such a beautiful voice and especially her harmonies. I don't, I don't, that girl should be on every single country record being made. Even now. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I guess when I think country we, records, we, they don't make country records like I think are country records. Yeah, but still, that would be a great clip on your uh, uh, on your resume or your one sheet. You know, I would say yeah. that. Hey, so we're kind of rolling towards the end here. If uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, could you? Because we what we are about uh, is is you know expanding and exposing and defining uh, Americana music and uh, still trying still trying to do that, huh? <laughs> well, absolutely, and I, I, more in the expanding and exposing world, but. You know, I'm still really, you know, especially you being part of, you know, you know, coining the term and getting it out there and making it, making it what it is today. Uh, what, what, what do you could add and give me your, your ideal version of, of Americana music, not, not whatever, all the confetti around it, but just, just, you know, what you believe is, is the, the root, the, the, the warm heart of it. Yeah. Well, I think it all goes back to, and I guess I just want to preference this for people who don't know when it's, when it was, when, when we started it out at Gavin back in the nineties, um, it was meant to, it was, we were trying to create an alternative country radio format. And while that may not have happened, it certainly has morphed into this whole other thing, which is totally great. And it's like recognized now as a name and whatever, and a genre. Right. Um, so that's great. Um, you know, and what I, back then you know that was the problem 30 years almost 30 years ago it was like you know what does it mean what's the definition who is who isn't and mm -hmm. it's always i always you know for us for, back at the time i always you know refer to it as like it's every element of country music and roots music that you don't hear on country radio and maybe that's still true and it's certainly grown into way more than that um so I, and again um the whole thing behind it was sort of like taking this K fat K hip 
ethos of where you're able to mix stuff. You're able to take um, alternative country. You're able to take singer-songwriters. You're able to take a little bit of bluegrass. You're able to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of, you know, maybe left of center rock and roll. And you're able to mix it all together and it all kind of works. And, you know, and at the time, I remember we were, I was given a ton of shit that, you know, why doesn't it include blues? It's like, well, it includes country blues. You know, we've got like Gate Mouth Brown and Taj Mahal and things like that. But blues is a blues is a format that lives on its own. Blues didn't need us at the time. You know, alternative country artists needed this. That was the that was the basis of it. You know, so um, where it is today. um I mean, you know, you've got Outlaw Country on Sirius XM, um, which which covers a good a good amount of it. But then there's this whole other aspect of it that you know doesn't get um, play in that world. So you know, I think it's great that it's opened up to what it is and become this thing. And you know, the organization has certainly helped with it. The Grammy thing has certainly helped with it. Um, you know, there are people who will always love it and there's people who always hate it you know it is mm-hmm. what it is mm-hmm. but um i think it's great and i also i also think i also think on the future of it and the you know the, again um going back to the this next generation like i mean the young guns out there in the acoustic in the instrumental world not just instrumental but these the talent behind this like you know molly tuttle billy strings phoebe hunt dominic mm-hmm. leslie alex hargreaves and and I just got turned on to these two kids in Nashville, these sick guitar players, Josh Halper and Sean Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, just saw both of them recently, Josh backing up Lily Hyatt, Sean backing up Aaron Ray. And these kids are amazing. So, you know, the music's in great hands. That's the best thing that I can see for it going forward. Take the journey, no matter where it starts, where it ends. I understood you had a little bit of a question about our our lightning round, Rob, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. I made it really easy, man. Okay, <laughs> this is these are all either or, and just you know, just pick one. Okay, so I got I think I got ten of them here. So can I? Okay. So if we're going to have there, the lightning round is a little bit of a misnomer because there's no time period. You can take as long as you want, but if you take too long, you're not going to sound like you've been paying attention. <laughs> you ready yeah all right golf or bowling golf mountains or desert shit desert burritos or egg rolls burritos leonard skinner or zz top oh shit it's easy top <laughs> you don't sound excited about either one of well, no i know no 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 <laughs> i no. I, I had a fandango t-shirt in uh-huh. like junior high school and i wish i still had that <laughs> but well given uh the nature of your huge you still have that ridiculous huge 
t-shirt collection, right? I do. Anyone out there want a Robert o Robert O'Keen um, five pound bass shirt with the fish all over it? I don't think there's I haven't seen one of those in years and years and years. <laughs> be on my Instagram for six hundred dollars. Okay, there you go. All right. Uh okay, hardly strictly or tell your ride. Oh trying to get me banned? No, no, I'm not. I'm not, not, not you know, it's just a, it's just a question. Oh, Jesus. You can oh, say both funny. if you want. I got to say both. I yeah. mean, you know, that's All right. insane. Buddy Emmons or Buddy Guy? Oh, Buddy Emmons. All right. Uh, I'm, meat, a steel, I'm a steel whore. I know you are. Meat in three or Brown's Diner? Brown's, because I've actually been there. Okay. Uh, the Bluebird or the Exit Inn? The Bluebird. All right. Uh, Highway 1 or A1A? Highway one, because yeah. it's out here. I, I know that. I just, I'm just throwing it out there. I make these up, man. Uh, I don't, I don't look on the internet for these things. But I want to go to that. I want to go to those that those songwriter festivals in Florida. Yeah, I, you know what? Uh, the one that I went to that was with Donna the Buffalo and, and Jonathan Edwards. It, it was called the Cypress thing or something like that. Uh -huh. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. It was a good one. Uh, yeah, and all these people are at that 30A one right now, and it looks amazing, and all these great people there. I'm like, oh, uh, why am I not? Which one's that? Is that the one in Key West? 30, 30A? It's, 30A. I don't, no, 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 no. I don't even know where it is, but everyone's posting yeah. pictures from the beach, and it looks great. All right, last of the lightning round, uh, the song Life on Mars or the song Once in a Lifetime? I'm going with Bowie. All right, great. Uh, so we've been, we've been, we've been, we've been talking to my old friend, Rob Bleatstein lives out in the Bay area. My name is Robert O'Keefe. You've been listening to Americana podcast here. Uh, here's my last question for you. It's not a lightning round question. It is. What is your best line to get backstage? I hear there's a clean, uncrowded bathroom here. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> very because good very good I, I love that i love that because that's all that really matters about backstage <laughs> all right man thank you so much at americana podcast we would like to thank our host robert earl keen and our guest, Rob Bleedstein. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keen Productions and American Songwriter. Edited and produced by Clara Rose, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play.